section fourteen of social life in england seventeen fifty to eighteen fifty by f j folks jackson this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami lecture five creevy papers the regency part two the thing which strikes us most in connection with the halcyon period of the dandies with its follies and lavish expenditure is that it coincided with some of the most anxious days through which england ever passed and with the age when distress and poverty were most keenly felt fashionable life was indeed fast and furious and characterized by its reckless extravagance everybody gambled every possible event was made the subject of a bet the turf was as it is to-day crowded with blacklegs and the issue of a great fight in the prize-ring was watched with more trembling anxiety than that of a battle in spain or flanders the prevalence of drunkenness was universal every memoir of the times records drinking bouts innumerable the fine gentleman garnished every sentence with an oath and even used bad language in his letters to his friends duelling was universal pitt the duke of wellington castlereagh nearly all the leading statesmen had to fight even the duke of york though very near the throne met the duke of richmond but with all its failings the men of fashion had one merit though they were almost incredibly coarse brutal and selfish no one could reproach them with softness they may have been bad but they were men if they went to see prize-fighters beat each other into a jelly they were ready enough to use their fists themselves if they gambled the cards and the dice they did so at the risk of ending their days in a debtor's prison many of them died ruined in purse and bankrupt even of honour if they pursued their amours unscrupulously there was always the risk of facing an outraged relative's pistol the spice of danger was never absent from their lives one alone could share in all their pursuits and be exempt from peril he could drink himself drunk without danger of his words being called in question he could ruin wives and daughters and no one would raise a hand against him he could engage in shady transactions on the turf and men made it a point of honour to shield his fair fame if others were extravagant they dissipated their own patrimony and when that was gone there was nothing for it but to starve but he had only to fall back on national resources and the taxpayer extricated him from his difficulties it is because of its immunity that the profligacy of george as prince as regent and as king is so detestable it has been customary i think to underrate his abilities thackeray has a most misleading passage about his relation with the whigs at first he made a pretence of having burke and fox and sheridan for his friends but how could such men be serious before such an empty scapegrace as this lad what had these men of genius in common with their tawdry young host of carlton house that fribble the leader of such men as fox and burke that man's opinions about the constitution about any question graver than the button of a waistcoat or the sauce of a partridge worth anything the friendship between the prince and the whig chiefs was impossible 
they were hypocrites in pretending to respect him and if he broke the hollow compact between them who shall blame him but if we turn to creevy we shall see that george played the game with the whigs with consummate skill not that he cared a straw for the constitution or political matters he wanted leisure comfort influence above all money he used the whigs for his purposes in the question of the regency and in order to extort money from the nation they were ready enough to serve him in defeating pitt and their other opponents but he once he was regent in eighteen twelve with his father the old king hopelessly insane flung them aside as no longer useful and made the tory government uphold the two things now to his interest to conserve the status quo and the power of the crown no one has ever doubted the power of fascination exercised by george which was due not less to his clever adaptability than to his high position what reader of lockhart's life of scott can forget the dinner-party when the king and sir walter exchanged mutual badinage in the freest manner we find the same in creevy regarding the extreme affability with which he treated him and the whig leaders at brighton when prince regent george's charm of manner and the ease with which he could adapt himself to his company and forget to all appearance his royal dignity and social intercourse was one of his most powerful political assets which he used to the fullest advantage the influence exercised by him was almost wholly evil head of the state in the days of its greatest military glory when the moral and political influence of england was paramount in europe living in the days of great industrial and mechanical triumph in which his country had the fullest share confronted as king with some of the gravest social problems which its poets and philosophers were taxing their utmost to expose and remove the marvel is that any man could have occupied such a position and yet interested himself almost exclusively in frivolous pleasures and sensual amours i do not think that it is too harsh a verdict to say that george the fourth's example acted like a poison to the social life of several generations vice was rampant enough in english society before he came to manhood but his father had done much to set an example to his nobility of a pure domestic life and to encourage simple tastes and pleasures gambling and profligacy went on despite the king but his son led the orgies of extravagance his taste was atrocious what can be more monstrous than the pavilion at brighton read thackeray's description of his coming-of-age fed at carlton house quoted from the european magazine seventeen eighty four the saloon may be styled the chef d'oeuvre and in every ornament discovers great invention it is hung with a figured plush the window curtains sofas and chairs are of the same colour the ceiling is ornamented with emblematical paintings representing the graces and muses together with jupiter mercury and apollo and paris two ormolu chandeliers are placed here etc etc the coronation was a monstrous exhibition of extravagance for the feast in westminster hall where the champion of england mounted on a horse borrowed from astley's theatre rode into the hall 
more than eight hundred dozen of wine and one hundred gallons of punch were provided vulgarity distinguished the period of the first gentleman in europe countless families were brought to ruin by association with him and at no time that i can call did more eminent people die by their own hands as thackeray says there is no greater satire on that proud society than that it admired george one episode which perhaps throws as much light as anything upon the manners and morals of the time the trial of caroline of brunswick the unhappy if indiscreet consort of george the fourth before making the attempt i am afraid i must go back to seventeen ninety five when the prince of wales on the report of his not too refined sailor brother decided to offer his hand to that princess he got very well paid by the country for the sacrifice his income was raised from sixty thousand pounds three hundred thousand dollars to one hundred and twenty five thousand pounds six hundred and twenty five thousand dollars for the preparations for the wedding he got twenty seven thousand pounds one hundred and thirty five thousand dollars a further grant of jewels and plate or cash to buy them twenty eight thousand pounds or one hundred and forty thousand dollars then came fifteen thousand pounds one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to complete carlton house and the princess his wife was in addition offered an allowance of fifty thousand pounds two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year for some reason i should say she was the only princess who ever did so caroline accepted less than was offered as an income namely thirty five thousand pounds or one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars it is true george also wanted his debts amounting to a trifle of six hundred thousand pounds or three million dollars odd paid and failed to get it still considering the value of money in those days and that times in england were worse than had been known wars taxes bad seasons the poor in abject distress pitt distracted how to raise money sedition rampant and no very glorious period for british arms he certainly did not sell himself cheap of the miserable marriage which ensued little need be said from the time the prince raised his bride when she tried to kneel and said to lord malmesbury harris i am not well get me a glass of brandy to her death twenty-six years later it is one long discreditable story but i allude to it for a personal reason i have myself seen two of the counsels of the queen in the celebrated trial dr lushington was a friend of my family's and i was at a school in brighton which lord brougham used to visit and i believe i am correct in saying this i actually received one of the prizes when he gave them away i certainly have a book on my shelves which i fancy i got on that occasion it assuredly does not make a man feel young when he realizes that he has seen and can remember men who not only witnessed but took a very prominent part in a trial which was held ninety-six years ago let me however recapitulate the events which led up to the great scene in the house of lords george as prince of wales hated his wife from the first and after the birth of the princess charlotte refused to have anything to do with her on april thirtieth seventeen ninety six the prince wrote a letter to the princess in which he said our inclinations are not in our power 
nor should either of us be held answerable to the other, because nature has not made us suitable to each other. I shall now finally close this disagreeable correspondence, trusting, as we have completely explained ourselves to each other, the rest of our lives will be passed in uninterrupted tranquillity. To do George justice, his wife does not seem to have been attractive. He had excellent taste in dress and deportment, and Caroline was far from being a model of refinement in appearance or manners, whilst her choice of company was never discreet. The old king always treated her with kindness and even affection, but he found it necessary to warn her to be more careful in the selection of her society. In 1804 the Prince of Wales instituted a delicate inquiry, which four lords were appointed to conduct, with the result that the behaviour of the princess was pronounced not unsatisfactory. In the years which followed there were constant quarrels and recriminations about the education of their daughter, the Princess Charlotte of Wales, a high-spirited girl who stood up boldly to the ill-treatment she received at her father's hands and defended her mother. In 1814 the Princess of Wales left England for her famous travels. Two years later the Princess Charlotte married Leopold of Saxe-Coburg and settled down at Claremont, a beautiful place purchased for her by the nation. The young couple were thoroughly happy, the people looked forward to being one day ruled over by a beloved and virtuous queen. The incredible scandals of the family of George III were being forgotten when the news came that the princess was dead. I shall never get to the trial. I must digress once more. What ensued was almost farcical. Despite the fact that George III had an immense family, he had no grandchildren, all his elderly sons hastened to get married. The Prince Regent was very little married to his wife, and very much so to various other ladies. The Duke of York had happily married, and was, if not always faithful, a kindly husband, but he had no family. The Duke of Cumberland had married a princess of whom the royal family disapproved, and perhaps he was more hated by the nation than any member of the House of Hanover. Among other things, many firmly believed that he was really guilty of the murder of his servant Celis. The idea of his coming to the throne was dreaded on all sides. But there was no lack of nominally unmarried royal dukes, Clarence, Sussex, Kent, and Cambridge. The nearest persons to the succession who had families were the King of Württemberg, his brother and their sister, the Princess Frederica Bonaparte, it became necessary for the royal dukes to take wives in accordance with the Royal Marriage Act of 1772, and though they had not only themselves but other ladies and their children to consider, these noble princes presented themselves at the altar of Hymen. Not, however, without some forethought, as the following remarks of the Duke of Kent to his friend Mr. Creevy testify. The duke thought that his brother Clarence would marry, but that his price would be too high for the ministers to accept, namely, a settlement such as is proper for a prince who marries expressly for a succession to the throne, and, in addition, the payment of all his debts and a handsome provision for each of his ten natural children. Kent, being next in the succession, was ready to do it cheaper. 
it is now twenty-seven years that madame st laurent and i have lived together and you may well imagine mr creevy the pang it will occasion me to part with her she need not have very much but a certain number of servants and a carriage are essentials being a man of no ambition the duke of kent wanted only twenty five thousand pounds or a hundred thousand dollars a year in addition to his present income if he took a wife the same sum as york had when he married in seventeen ninety two and kent was generously prepared to make no further demands because of the decreased value of money since his brother's allowance was made as to the payment of my debts he concluded i don't call them great the nation on the contrary is greatly my debtor so it is for he married and became the father of queen victoria End of section 14